Okay, yeah, I'm good to start. We all good? Yep, all good with me. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 38 of The Third Wheel. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron Conway. And I'm your other host, Hamish Lackman. And today we are joined by Sonali, all the way from Hong Kong. Sonali, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Sonali. I went to Warwick with Hamish and Aaron. I think I know Aaron through for Chibo. That's where we, like, I think first met up and started working together on that home-cooked food startup. And Hamish, I know you through the boar. I think you did the boar website, right? Yeah. Wait, did we speak at the boar? <laughs> I don't think we spoke at the boar. Okay. Um, I think I just noticed you through the Facebook group and I was like, oh, okay. I like, I know yeah. of this guy. You know how at Warwick you know of yeah, yeah. people, but you don't know them. But like when you meet mm-hmm. them, you're like, oh yeah, I know you. It's it's always mm-hmm. been very awkward for me when like someone's like, well, hi, I'm so and so. I'm like, yeah, I know you, but I don't. Yeah. No, I had that situation at the pool. <laughs> I was like, yeah, they've seen my name, but I don't know. Like, who's who because I've never put the face to the name. You see, the thing is, yeah, me and Aaron, yeah, we both worked there, but one of us did the job in it. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. I, I, was a, I was a silent partner. Silent partner. I mean, you guys had a freelancing startup. Not freelancing, but like if, if like a website development came along, it would go to your company. I think I remember this. I did a piece on yeah. like for like Warwick startups. Te- technically, we still do have that. But yeah, for Chibo was the first time we met. You came on as like a bit of like an intern to like help us on like the social media kind of side of things. Yeah, that's right. Did you know like Avantika or Ali for that? I did know Avantika from before. So I think I've known her since first year. We met during fresher. We always said like hello to each other. We had mutual friends. She did econ, so we had a couple of lectures together. And mm. Ali, again, was one of those people who I knew of but didn't know until for Chibo. Yeah, I think as Hamish said earlier, that's something we found a lot, especially with like previous guests where we knew off each other but we didn't really like know them like yeah. close closely. That makes sense. Yeah, and then uni, what what did you study? So I studied PPE at uni, which is philosophy, Paul, and econ. Now when people think of PPE, they think of something entirely different because of the virus. Um, <laughs> but yeah, at the time, it was, I remember, because I grew up in Hong Kong, I was debating whether or not to go abroad for uni because I wasn't sure where I was going to like start working. But the advantage with Hong Kong and like my mom having been here for quite some time, she was born here as well, is that she was born during the British occupation of Hong Kong. And some rules changed in the 80s, which meant that she was eligible for British citizenship. And she passed it on to me and my brother. There was a viable option for me to go to the UK because I didn't need a student visa and I didn't need a work visa. So that's why I was considering it. Eventually came to the UK thinking that I would pursue finance and political journalism. So that's why I joined the board and did some other internships and thought that doing PPE would really help me out. But then like every corporate seller at Warwick, I chose consulting. So that was fun. Um, But I guess that way Warwick exposed me to a lot. Like I didn't think, like if I'd stayed in Hong Kong, I probably wouldn't have worked for a food startup. I probably wouldn't have met half the people or done half the things that I did at Warwick. So that way the student community was good, but the degree is debatable. Before like university, I didn't know what PPE was. Yeah, I didn't know that was a thing like combining all three of those subjects. And whenever someone said, oh, this person has PPE, they're like... Oh yeah, that that's the smart one. <laughs> I was like one of the like really uh, smart kids. Like same with like Morse or something. Yeah. PP, so philosophy, politics, and economics. Is that like all three of them equally? You're kind of doing like three degrees in one almost. It doesn't have to be three degrees in one. You can choose different pathways. So some people went in your first year. You have to do a little bit of all of them. Um, so you'll have 
one core philosophy, politics, and econ module each. And then you can choose a couple of modules in each. But I think most of our modules in first year were core. So I think we had six core modules, two of each in each subject. Then in second and third year, you can specialize. So a lot of people who wanted to go to Warwick for econ or figured that they wanted to do econ out of PPE, you could major in that subject. But that meant you had to take mostly econ modules and econometrics, which is quite difficult. And then alternatively, if you felt you were more like social science and qualitative inclined, you could go towards politics and philosophy. So I ended up doing like major politics and minor in econ. And I actually wasn't very good at econ. I kind of wish I'd done more philosophy and politics because I prefer writing um, rather than doing like quantitative work. But I picked econ because I thought it would be more employable. But really, all anybody sees is that you did PPE and it doesn't matter. So I would have made different choices if I could have. So you grew up in Hong Kong, you went to school in Hong Kong, yeah. I think, and then chose to go Warwick. Why Warwick? It's it's quite known in Hong Kong. They, Hong Kong has a big okay. like alumni association here for Warwick. There are tons of Warwick people who've come back to Hong Kong. I think in our year, close to a thousand people from Hong Kong came that I knew of. There could have been more. And there were a lot of like Hong Kong-focused societies at Warwick. So yeah, it, it, they have a really good connection here. A lot of Warwick people who choose to come back here have good job prospects. So it's quite well known. But yeah, I think the case with Hong Kong and China is they tend to know unis like Oxford, Cambridge, Imperial. But thankfully here, Warwick has a good base. So it was still viable if they wanted to come back and work here. Okay. And then how was it like, I guess, the initial like transition from Hong Kong to the UK? So weirdly, the first thing I noticed was that all the signs were in one language and not two languages. I know it's an odd thing, but obviously, like, I grew up, English is my first language because I went to a British school and I did GCSEs and IB and stuff here. But I was also very used to seeing Chinese characters everywhere. So when I first got to BK, I was like, oh, there's only English here. There's no other language here, which sounds odd, but I think that was the first thing that hit me. Other than that, I think because Hong Kong has a lot of British influence, like the practicalities of stuff were quite similar to so like driving, plugs, the way like, you know, things work, the way people spoke. I was quite used to from going to a British school. The drinking culture was a bit of a shock to the system. I didn't realize I'd have to drink so much. I eventually made friends with people who didn't drink as much. And I was like, oh my God, I went to pop and I was I, I was a bit shocked. Too much purple. Yeah. But I think I settled in okay after, like once I got to second term because by then I'd, I'd made a lot of friends who had similar experiences to me. And I think I also got okay with kind of being away from home and being in a new environment and trying new things. But it was actually not too bad for me, I would say. So you went to a British school and did like GCSEs and everything? Yeah. So um because Hong Kong used to be a British colony, I think in the 50s and 60s after the World War, there was this English schools foundation that was built here. It's called like, ESF. And they built schools across Hong Kong for like British expats and other expats to send their kids to school here. So that still stands today. And it used to be they it used to be the public school system here. But as kind of Hong Kong has become independent from the British and being handed back to China, that funding is decreasing so yeah the british system was set up essentially for the people who took over here and the structure still stands today so a lot of people who want an english education go to those like sister schools so it's funny because my mom went to an esf british school and i my brother and i went to the same kind of umbrella but different branches so it's interesting to see how long it's been here for i guess you don't really have the comparison of studying like pre-university in england but I was yeah. going to ask like how it was kind of teaching wise in Hong Kong compared to teaching wise in the UK you found. But because it was a British school, was it like pretty similar? 
other than the fact it was like lower school and university? Yeah, in some cases, yes. In some cases, no. So I think here we had a lot of like British white teachers. I think that's changing now. But as I was growing up, a lot of them came from the UK. The only exception was our Chinese teachers. We all have to learn Mandarin in school, even though it's in English school. So that was useful. I felt like while I was going to school, there were mostly white British teachers. I think the history we learned was very UK centric. We did celebrate things like Chinese New Year and Diwali and stuff in school, just to. I guess account for the diversity that was there in our classes, but I think in terms of education, a lot of it was quite similar to the UK. I guess that does kind of already like lead on to some of like the Black Lives Matter stuffs because I've seen you mentioned like the curriculum and being taught a lot of history, but mainly like white history. And I guess quite a lot of talk at the moment is how they should change the curriculum to kind of make it more diverse and teach not just like World War One and World War Two kind of thing and teach about like slavery and stuff like that. For me, it's like kind of an obvious thing. Like, of course they should do it. Like it's not really yeah. like something it shouldn't to be debate, up for debate. Really. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. People are like, yeah, you should educate yourself. And it, I, I almost think like, why do we even have to educate ourselves? It should have been, we should have known this anyway. Like yeah. all of my like knowledge from it has probably come from biopic films and like watching documentaries. And that's like purely where my knowledge of all of it comes from. But looking back on it, we weren't, we weren't really taught anything like that. I don't know if it was any different for you two. No, no, it was, it was very similar for us. I Personally, I can remember, I think, in about year seven or eight, because I only took history till year nine, because at GCSE, I wasn't very inspired by history, so I dropped it. And I think it's for that reason. I wasn't really learning about Chinese history very much, even though we lived in, in Hong Kong. We did do some Hong Kong history in relation to World War II, so that was quite nice to have. But I think it was very, like, the Japanese imprisoned the British, and then ultimately the Hong Kong people fought for independence, that kind of thing. So post-World War II, to the portray the British in a good light. Again, that's debatable. Probably come on to that when we speak about the Hong Kong protests. But I have a recollection from one of my history lessons where they said we should write to our grandparents to ask them about their experience of World War II. And I wrote to my grandfather via email. And he said, I really don't want to reply to this because your school is going to want to see the British soldiers and colonizers in a good light. And I unfortunately can't do that because my experience of them was that they weren't very nice to us and they'd like throw sandbags in front of our houses and they'd like treat us patronizingly. Because pre-World War II and pre-Indian partition, he was living in Karachi when it was part of India. And then he had to move over in 1947. So he didn't know how to give me a reply that would satisfy my school. But I said, just be as honest as possible. They want to hear anything or so I thought so he sends the reply and I ended up not getting a very good mark for it because they told me it was biased and I said you're asking for a first person account he, he didn't entirely insult them he just said we were under British rule at the time they you know throw candies at us to satisfy us that kind of stuff my teacher didn't respond very well to it so I think that was one of the things that put me off history because I was I was being taught what school and like the British curriculum wanted me to learn rather than what was more relevant. So it was interesting. I'd want to focus on like Hong Kong history and Indian history in class because that's something I wanted to learn because it was something that was spoken about a lot at home, but it wasn't spoken about much in school. And that I feel like that really needs to change. Yeah. What about uh, you, Hamish? We didn't learn much about, I guess, like, you know, the kings and queens of actual countries in Africa and so on. Even nothing about Hong Kong. I don't remember a single thing about Hong Kong, China. But it's just one of those things where no one taught us. But then when, I guess through me, for me, it's through music. So like when eventually, like when people would just leave subtle stuff in music. But obviously it just kind of went brushed over because 
we were kind of taught to acknowledge more, I guess, wider things. Because if you stick within the school system mindset, it stays very, very narrow. And if you don't go educate yourself outside of it, then you just end up being a narrow-minded person that they want you to be, more little things. So yeah, especially recently, like I've I've started to catch up on my backlog of Akala videos. He's like a rapper slash poet and he's pretty yeah, good at he's pretty good at explaining the, you know, the a little bit of the history, the stuff he faced and so on, how things came about, whether inequality through class and everything, how all of that stuff kind of plays in, how he works with different kids from different areas, but only the black or I guess portrayed in the negative light. The white seem to be given um, justifications and all this stuff. But yeah, so like if you... It's a long backlog of like one hour videos of Akala stuff on the internet. So I advise people probably start watching them too. You, it may not like teach you everything, but it will give you like a bit more of an insight through someone who's very good at articulating his, what he needs to say with words, as well as being very open-minded to it. So probably the best thing I can say there. Yeah, I completely agree. I think whenever I've come across Akala's videos on the internet, I've always like watched them on that quite a lot. So it drove me to read his book, which I'm still currently getting through because it's heavy stuff. Yeah. Like it's, I think I've seen on the internet things about it's one thing to read about racism and it's great that you get to educate yourself rather than experience it. So I'm grateful for that. But then also I've been trying to decolonize my reading list and kind of read more of more topical stuff at this point so there's a lot of protests in the uk i'm not sure in hong kong really i know there's lots of protests like in many countries surrounded black lives yeah, matter no, but... at the moment we don't have that in hong kong because i think people the people who are protesting are more concerned with not being part of china and apparently there was an incident a friend of mine on instagram shared and he said that a woman from the black community here it's pretty small as far as i know but she wanted to have a black lives matter protest or like bring a sign to the Hong Kong protests and I think a lot of the protesters shot her down and bullied her and called her many racist things. This is yesterday I think because yesterday was one of the anniversaries of the Hong Kong protests from last year. So and I think one of the lead activists, his name is Joshua Wong, reportedly used a lot of racist slurs against the Black Lives Matter movement and claimed that China is calling out the Black Lives Matter movement to take away from our movement. So it's getting very murky here now with the Hong Kong protests. I it's difficult to choose a side at the moment. You see lots of stuff online about people. Well, a big thing at the moment is people saying that, oh, the UK is not as bad as America because the whole kind of the George Floyd stuff was in America. And I guess a lot of the news about police brutality is made worldwide news. It comes from America. But um, I think actually when Hamish is talking about music, it always reminds me of Dave's song he did, Black, from yeah, the Brits Awards. Back. And then when he added in like a bit that's not on like the official track, he was like, the least racist is still racist. Like it doesn't matter if there's like more cases of it in America. Like if if it's if you have one case, it's still racist. Like it's not a difference. And I feel like a lot of this right now and how like public it's been on social media, it's just made me realize like how mad it is. Like people like Donald Trump is kind of in charge of like countries like like known racists or even like Boris Johnson or something like that. Well, Donald Trump's more than a racist. I don't know if you know, he's been exposed for being also like a child molester or whatever. So, yeah, yeah. I'm not surprised anymore. Yeah. I'm just not surprised. I think nothing Donald Trump does anymore surprises me. It's just all bad. I mean, I'm sure, I, I, I don't even know if there's any good in there. Broad statement, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that Reg 3-2, so another rapper slash poet of the UK, yeah. his dad was tasered by the police in a random act of, I guess, police brutality when they rushed, broke into his home looking for someone that didn't live there or something. And then they were on ITV News about it or so on and explaining it. So 
Retchdichu's dad is like, I don't know, what was it? Like 60, 70 years old or whatever. And just got tased the moment they ran into the house. He like dropped down the staircase. And then the one that did it, like, there was like, he was not like being any like, as far as we could see via the body cam, he was not being like harmful or anything. He was just like ran up in the house and he was at the top of the staircase. So the guy just tased him. And then there's the other officer asking if he's okay after he drops down the staircase. And it's just like, ridiculous. And it's just like, that literally happened. Uh, out of all the times when they're doing this, running into the home, for whatever reason, yeah, they just went ahead and did it to someone that was unarmed and they said that he's reaching for a weapon. When, it's mental. Yeah, I was just like, there you go. That's just think, UK for you. It's mental. I think that's similar to the case with Brianna Taylor. So she was shot in her home in around the end of March, I yeah. want to say. And I think they broke into her house without a warrant again to look at somebody who wasn't there. And they, they didn't even see her and they shot her, I think, eight times. And she died in her home. Like, yeah. And her family were screaming and all over the place. It was like a no knock. Yeah, it was a no knock. Yeah. They just burst the door down. So apparently they've passed like Brianna's law, which means they can't do the no knock thing anymore in her state. But the problem with the US is that the laws aren't common, like aren't common across all the states. A lot of states have autonomy. So that was a good thing in the case of coronavirus because Donald Trump didn't want to impose a lockdown across the US. So all the states did it for him. But in terms of like, things that should unify a country it's probably not the best system yeah the thing is though as well like this i guess this movement right now is kind of heightened but it's been happening for years he hasn't yeah. just been like the george floyd brianna taylor but like um was it? i watched i watched a film recently called fruitvale station which was oscar grant and that was in 2008 when he was uh shot by a policeman um near san francisco and that was also i saw one comment where I think it was Will Smith. I'm not 100% sure. And it was it was saying like how racism isn't new. It's just being filmed on camera now. Yeah. Because um, of like technology and stuff. It's been happening for God knows how many years. But like even then, that's, it's, it's, it's mad, I think, how long it takes for like change to happen, especially like legally. Like it's just the whole system is just so slow, like to pass any laws of any kind. Which I think is where a lot of like the protests come from because it's for, like this law is going to take years to change when really it shouldn't. So protesting is kind of like the maybe the best option to kind of get your voice heard and heard quickly to evoke change. Yeah, I think also it, it just shows how much we can get to a pressure point before we actually do something. Like many governments around the world are very reactive to crises so a lot of this legislation and a lot of decisions to defund police in the, U the u.s has been as a result of protests and looting and rioting and people having to die at the hands of police again i'll probably draw a comparison with coronavirus around the world i think even when we started to get cases in the uk the government weren't very proactive they were quite reactive so it wasn't until we were approaching our peak or like things were getting bad in March that they thought to impose a lockdown. I think that was the case for a lot of countries. But I think some countries are a lot less reactive, they're a lot more proactive, and they would probably try and nip things in the bud sooner. Like New Zealand is currently virus-free. Um, I'm struggling to think of an example for race issues for it to be proactive rather than reactive. I guess it goes to show how much work there is that needs to be done. What What is the whole defund the police thing about? I've seen that a lot, but I haven't actually like looked into it much so from what i understand is that people feel that that the police have too much funding so they're almost receiving like military level funding to use certain guns and rubber bullets and pepper spray mm. and a lot of them carry military grade weapons to go in, into protests 
And it's also the idea that the police have too much power. So a lot of them are maybe trained for eight weeks and then can go in with full combat gear to tackle protesters. So I think the idea is that if funding is cut for police departments, then they'll probably make wiser decisions about what kind of okay. tools they use in the field and how they train their people. Yeah, I think in yeah. d- addition to that, they try to use it alongside the thing, at least in America, it's alongside the hospital funding because they haven't basically funded like a healthcare system to be like publicly available and the doctors aren't equipped enough as well as the police. So the police are, as you said, military level like equipped, but the yeah. the healthcare workers don't even have like the same level of, of funding that they have. And this is also, also exactly. what... Yeah, I think if you even compare it to the UK, the UK also puts in a lot of money to defence and military spending and Hopefully we live in a world where World War Three won't occur again, but judging by the way things are going, mm-hmm. I won't say that. Um, <laughs> I think, yeah, I think we probably need to be thinking about where our money should be going. So we can only hope that if police are defunded, that money will probably go towards a public health care system, or at least it should. But again, if Trump gets re-elected, Trump is very pro-military and pro-funding police so that might not happen but yeah if we draw a parallel to the uk the nhs is underfunded whereas parts of the government are more overfunded so if we can hopefully prioritize things like health then we can beat crises like these in future but again it it depends on the government right it's not something you can challenge yeah so there was a thing what did they say they were like they quickly managed to pass in like so the MPs basically passed something that allowed them to get thousands of pounds to set up work from home equipment and everything, but they couldn't pass anything to increase the salary by the same amount that they basically got per MP. Like it was like a few thousand pounds or something for the NHS Yeah, They weren't able to do that yet. That's, it just went into debate really in comparison good. to the part, how quickly it was passed. And this also yeah. comes, comes from, I guess, a bit stems from like, in reality, the world, yeah, like, I learned this from like an Akala thing. I'm not going to quote it exactly, but people should probably go watch, as I said, some Akala videos. Like he said, yeah. to run the world, you only need two to three percent of the population to be properly educated. Like it doesn't matter if the rest aren't educated. And usually the two to three percent that are, are usually happen to be from the same background and so on. So like they're already going to be fitting that memo that they need to currently fit the world's need to be running the world. So per each country, that's how it would, I guess, form running the world. And that was like such a true statement because I guess if you want to be more proactive, you have to allow for more equality in that two to three percent that end up running the world anyways. But since that's not going to happen, it's more like, it's more like how can, I guess, are the government willing to stop hiring or like make a more diverse government amongst themselves? Yeah, I think it depends on one, which government you vote in and two, the kind of education that you have in place. Because I think education around the world is running behind the actual needs of what people need. So I think digital education needs to catch up. Racial education also needs to catch up in order to run the world, like you said. And because even though the UK and US are democratic societies, the people we put in power are meant to make decisions on behalf of all of us. And if a certain number of people vote for a party or a government that doesn't serve the wider interests of people, then I guess you're stuck in a limbo. So I think what you say about educating the small number of people who make decisions on behalf of all of us is really necessary, but we need massive systemic changes in order to do that. Yeah, I I don't know how you guys feel, but like, and I don't know if this is something that people have felt in the past and then nothing's happened, but I do feel like this movement happening right now is 
is going to change things. That's just a feeling. I don't know if same thing happened like 20 years ago, 30 years ago before I was born and they thought the same thing and then it just fizzled out and went back to unfortunately what was normal at the time. But it, it does feel like that systematic change could be happening like right now i have seen a lot of i've seen quite a few articles where and like posts on instagram and stuff like that where they're saying they're showing evidence of how all these protests in the last i'm not sure like month or so have like things that it has changed yeah i agree i mean i think i was looking at a new york Times poll again new york times is very pro-democrat in the u.s but i think it's shown how support for anti-racist measures have increased whereas i think before the public were apathetic or even against speaking about race, but I think there's a graph and it's risen exponentially since the protests have started. Yeah, and did it compare it to like other um, yeah. movements and how they don't really, in a short space of time, like in a month, it's, yeah, as you said, changed exponentially, but normally it's it only increases or decreases by like a couple percent, whereas this has been like a lot more Yeah, on the good side. Yeah, I agree. I think also if we look at, the people around us. I think my family and I had a big debate about race yesterday and we're speaking about whether we should be judging people based on their appearance, based on past experiences. And I was speaking to them about some of the things that I'd read. So those are conversations we wouldn't usually have, which is a which is already a step in the right direction. I've seen people from all walks of life on my social media say, oh, I need to read, I need to do the work. I'm supporting these businesses. I'm supporting these charities. And generally, when we have a catastrophe happen, people will post a black square, people will donate, and people will move on. But I think it's been, I want to say, two and a half weeks since the George Floyd incident, and people are still talking about this. And I hope they will for a long time, because it's this seems to have really changed people's minds. It's very unfortunate that it's had to get to this stage. And it's very unfortunate that we're quite reactive as a population, but I don't think we can ignore this anymore. Yeah, so historically, I think also regarding this, I've seen that the protests kind of, there's like two things here. So like, it's how the media will also view the protests and how long the protests last. So even historically, all the previous protests have not only taken severe, I guess, how to say it, that it seems the media was always against the protests. Even even now, it still looks like it. Yeah. And what also happens is that the protests don't end up lasting as long because it kind of, I guess, fizzles out. So we can hope that it doesn't fizzle out and all the changes are made. But sadly history has continued to repeat itself over the years and yeah i agree to see the change like we don't know what's going to happen but we can only hope that these protests continue until i guess someone with some common sense that is meant to be running the country starts to take some action instead of doing things like blocking off certain statues such as winston churchill (laughs) yeah and acting like he's some saint he really wasn't i remember watching the film the darkest hour and i was quite angry at the picture that they portrayed of um winston churchill they had this scene where he came on to the tube carriage and he was speaking to like people from different walks of life i think there were some like ethnic minority characters on the tube and it was it, it was very jarring to see because from what I know about Winston Churchill, based on reading outside of the curriculum, like even at school they painted Winston Churchill as a hero because they said, oh, if he hadn't come in, we would have all been German by now and speaking German, which may not have been so bad. Germany doing pretty well, but I digress. Um, but yeah, I I don't understand why you would celebrate. Churchill, if he willingly let three million people die in India and call them savages, like Boris Johnson worships Winston Churchill, and I think that says a lot about him. And yes, he did win the war and he revived the UK's economy, but even though Adolf Hitler persecuted many Jews and lost the war and 
Germany was in tatters afterwards. Initially, he did really well for the economy when he started, but we don't see, we don't worship Adolf Hitler. Nobody in Germany does. And they're taught their histories that it's never repeated again. And every German is well aware that Adolf Hitler wasn't a good leader and his genocide happened because of their country. Like the UK isn't taught that. And those of us in the UK system aren't taught that either. So I was just about to say, I can understand why people worship him now in a sense that at the time he was a massive hero and that's just filtered down and passed down through generations. So I can understand why people still worship him because it's just been passed down as, as like truth. Yeah. But then when you compared it to actually like Hitler, like I'm, I'm not comparing like Winston Churchill and Hitler, but in Germany at the time, Hitler was, he was their ruler. But then over time that has been filtered out that kind of truth. Yeah, that's also because like the victor's truth becomes the truth that everyone knows. So like it doesn't matter what anyone else says or like the losing party said because they lost and they're not there to tell their truth. So only the person victorious can say it. So obviously Winston Churchill and prehistoric through throughout history, obviously the white guy is made to look like the good guy because they essentially won the war. But if you look back at it, they won that war, but did they win any other wars? It's like they basically made it so racist from as early as you can probably learn. Yeah, that's true. Because I mean, they're the ones who write the history that has been told to everybody, right? So those of us who have grown up in the UK or people who studied in Commonwealth countries or people who are even interested in coming to the UK for better opportunities, I think those people have had to kind of learn the UK history. And I think if we were learning... Like if I was learning, I don't know, Hong Kong history or Indian history, I'd probably, you know, support those ideas a bit more. Because in the UK, I think the white British population are learning their history. They're more proud of it. So they're more willing to advocate it. I think it really depends on which version you learn. Because some of it's been erased, some of it is not as yeah. widely available. Some things I've seen recently as well, and I've seen, I've seen it in the past as well, but Mahatma Gandhi. Yeah, that's... Yeah, he was never like his. Whole, <laughs> yeah, and that's something like a lot of Indians are brought up on, just as much as English people are brought up on Winston Churchill being his hero. Yeah, a lot of Indians brought up on like Mahatma Gandhi being like the guy who fought for Indian people's rights and brought independence to India. But from what I know, as much as he fought for like, yeah, Indian people, he was he was racist to black people. Yeah, I think he there are claims that he was like pro apartheid. I think he spent some time in South Africa. He wasn't very nice to his wife and children. I think he was quite abusive. But then at the same time he fought for the independence of India and that's why he's on all the notes and that's why he's so widely lauded. People treat him like a god. I think Martin Luther King has a similar story. Apparently and even Nelson Mandela, apparently they weren't very faithful to their families. But they still fought for, you know, their like Martin Luther King was a big proponent of the black race movement. And then Nelson Mandela campaigned against apartheid and was thrown in prison. But even though nobody's perfect, I think it's important to look at the atrocities from their past because it shows what they would stand for if they were under pressure. So yeah. while it's great that India is independent, it's debatable how good the deal was that India got in the end. When you have people like nest, like kind of famous people, and they they're famous for doing something like a thing that's really good, a lot of people just forget everything kind of how they've done. Yeah. Like there's so many like people I've looked up to, and I've like watched documentaries on them or like biopics, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, this guy's really good. And it ends up they've fucking cheated on their wife about ten million times yeah. and done a load of shit. And I'm just like, oh, <laughs> great. Like they've done these great things, 
but it doesn't really make them a good person. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, the most recent example for me personally, I think, is J.K. Rowling. So I've always wanted to be a writer of some kind. Okay, yeah. um, and I've loved Harry Potter books. I think I read the first one when I was six. I didn't understand it at all. And then most recently, she came out with some very transphobic tweets and a massive, like, nearly 4,000 word essay on why she was anti-trans laws in Scotland. And it taints your love of something like Harry Potter because it's meant to be a story of love and acceptance and magic and anything is possible and good over evil and, you know, ask for help, turn, like, you can find light in darkness, that sort of thing. Yeah. So I think Emma Watson and Daniel Radcliffe, and I think Bonnie Wright, have, also, have all come out against J.K. Rowling and said, look, we hope that the story hasn't been tainted, tainted by her own personal views. And I think it'll be difficult for me to go back to Harry Potter in the same way. But it's also important to remember yeah. that everybody's human. So even with actors, you might love them on screen, but they might be horrible in real life. I don't know, Hamish, have you like, experienced a similar example of this with people that you look up to? Yeah, like, when I find out, like, certain things, like, whether it's, like, even if, like, I guess, not regard to racism, like, if it's, like, a nasty betrayal, if it's, like, a character thing, like, you snake someone that's meant to be, like, your brother-like friend. Yeah. That, like, if I listen to your music, it's basically, I can't listen to your music. I may occasionally listen to that one of the one of the two songs or something. Yeah. But that's, at, like, a push. Like, I just have that thing, like, now you did this to someone. Like, you're violating this code of loyalty, like, I like to um, have in my head. So, now that's that. And same thing would kind of go racially. So, one of my... I guess favorite artists from like nearby here. I used to think it was the lyrics. I wasn't sure if they said that guy's just acting up. He's an Indian. He's a silly kid. Yeah. I thought that was the lyric. But luckily when I found out that it was just idiot, not Indian. Yeah. I was just like, <laughs> thank God. Yeah. Because I almost couldn't listen to that artist. Yeah. If he said that, I'm like, I'm not having that. Yeah. If you're local to here and you're saying something like that. um, So yeah, I, I have these things where like, I'm trying to think of a movie case because I, I like basically rewatch Harry Potter during Christmas every year. Yeah. So I'm just trying to th- trying to think is there like another thing in Harry Potter though you notice though like it's basically solely white with a few people from ethnic minorities here and there yeah the, all the main characters are white and then you've got like Cho Chang and like Kwan P. Pato Dean Thomas those are like the only non-white characters that I can remember all the other main characters yeah. are white it has to be like an active effort from like everywhere to try and not be racist and try to make it equal so but I'm trying to, yeah, I can't think of the top of my head of like movies and TV shows I can't watch because of certain things like that being said. But when J.K. Roll, Rowling, uh, ro- yeah, yeah, I can't say her Rowling, name anymore. Rowling, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, um, <laughs> it doesn't matter now. She's cancelled. <laughs> yeah, J.K. Rowling tweeted that. I was just like, you know, yeah, like I don't want to excuse it because of age as well, because obviously in her history, everything is a lot different. And sometimes it's yeah. harder to teach an older person. But I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm saying. I can kind of understand that your history is so blurred, but you not trying to learn is also because of your stupid history that you've come up with and the fundamental teachings you have. So whilst you're not solely at fault, you are still at fault. Yeah, I I agree. I think if you're not willing to listen, it's a fault on your part. What did she actually say in like 4,000 words? I didn't read that. Like all I saw was... I tried to read it and it was a really convoluted essay. And I think the Guardian summarized it. Essentially, some of her views were that she thought that people were being pressured into... Try into changing their gender because they thought they'd be more accepted as male rather than female. She claimed that there are people who were trying to reverse their transitions. And I think one of her main claims is that if a man isn't able to, like, if like men can apparently declare that they're women and live as women and then inhabit women's spaces and she feels that that dilutes the progress that have been made in women's rights movements. But a lot of trans laws clearly state that 
a man who wants to be a woman has to have been living as a woman and provide proof of that. So for example, any straight man I know can't just walk in and say, right, I'm a woman now, give me all those you know, rights to those spaces as a trans woman. So I don't think it's as simple as that. I understand the fear to an extent, but it doesn't inform how I view trans women. Isn't she supposed to be like releasing a new book soon? Yes, I think she did a lot of that trans people research for that book. Uh, and she okay. supported this lesbian advocate who said that I wouldn't date a trans woman because a trans woman has a penis. And I think J.K. Rowling and the person that she was supporting were attacked for that. So I think, I don't know, it's very hard with a lot of contentious issues to remain level-headed and logical and try and see the person's point of view, uh, especially when another person's point of view harms another human being. So it makes me wonder if people who hold certain views are okay with harming other people, because while you might not agree with kind of everything that's outside of your world and the way that you were raised, why would you want other people to be harmed for believing and thinking and being a certain way but i think not everybody thinks that way so that's quite annoying to me personally i don't know a few years ago or something i don't know whether it was at uni or whatever i had heard the saying from some i have no idea where i heard it but it was basically like a child isn't born closed-minded a child is like very open-minded you're like when you're a child you're, you're you don't care about you literally don't care about color for the most part like color um, you don't care about anything like you you live your mind so openly and then yeah. the education system narrows it down and then whatever you become out product of, you're a product of that education system with that narrow mindset. And it's yeah. just like, can the education system be refined? Like people have been saying like, if you're just solely using the education system, then then you're pretty much done for anyways. If you're not going out of your way to do some external research anyways, then yeah, it's a big L for you. Yeah. I agree. It's something that should be promoted to do your own reading and stuff like that. I think at school they tried to give us like independent projects to, you know, go off and do our own research and write about, but ultimately it also tends to be about getting good marks. So you also try and that kind of narrows your scope for whatever you want to do in any case. Yeah. Just for we like get back on topic a bit more with the Black Lives Matter yeah, sure. stuff. Um, I, I just wanted to give an example. You said like J.K. Rowling, a big one for me was Ryan Giggs. Is he to do with football, I want to say? Yeah, yeah. so he, he's, he was a football player. He's now actually manager of Wales. Okay. And he's, he's the most successful player ever in Premier League history. He played for Manchester United, which was my team. Yeah. Played there his whole life from like the age of 17 or whatever to 40. Like a football legend and he he was my like idol he was my like favorite footballer and this was around i don't know year eight year nine or whatever and then it came out that he cheated on his wife for like 15 years with his brother's wife oh my god and like when that came out i remember like going to school and it was like in newspapers and people were like oh yeah ryan geezer and i was like yeah it's not true man it's not true like he's a good guy whatever and then when it was like, eventually, like over time, it became like common knowledge kind of thing. And that just like kind of broke my heart. And I couldn't like see him the same way again. I just wanted him like out of the club. Oh my like, goodness. I just thought he was such, such a like dickhead. And then he even managed Manchester United for a little while. And I was like, how can you have someone who's done that kind of stuff? Like, yeah, he's a football legend. Like what he's done on the pitch is hard to argue with. Like the stuff he's accomplished in football, but 
off the pitch like it's just yeah like you it's yeah you just can't even like comprehend it and that just kind of spoiled that was one instance where someone that i looked up to kind of thing and admired and then it just some shitty thing he did just kind of like spoils it yeah it's it's difficult but then i think the argument people give is oh you should keep your professional and personal life separate and i I don't think that can entirely always be the case like with regards to recent black lives matter events and i think other things that have happened there's been a group of people at work uh who've been trying to bring this to discussion with senior leadership so i work at deloitte at the moment shameless plug and i'm working with the multicultural network so i was responsible for drafting some tweets to help the firm respond to black lives matter and then one of my colleagues also leads a ethnicity council within consulting so that's my department and he held two sessions this week where he invited like senior leadership at the firm so i think we have very few senior black people at our company and i think he could only find like three directors and he asked them to speak about their experiences with race on this like zoom call and um the heads of different part of consulting and the head of consulting herself were on that call and then other people were invited to speak and that whole session was recorded and these were they were speaking about the kinds of things that are never spoken about in the workplace so people called out the company and said oh we've been passed up for promotion because we're black i've been excluded from meetings because i'm because i and i know it's because of my race so it was really interesting and quite surreal to hear that on a work call because I mean, I hope like change comes out of it and I hope that, you know, a lot of the actions that were suggested are documented. But it goes to show that on certain issues, you can't let professional and personal remain separate because we're all human. Professional judgment does interfere at the workplace. But when it comes to, I think, cheating and stuff, I don't know how much that should affect your professional life. But I think it will change the way that you see and work with that person for sure. And it will probably affect your admirers if you're a famous person. Yeah, for sure. And then touching a bit back on the uh, like the Black Lives Movement, a lot of common thing that's talked about is how when people say Black Lives Matter and someone will respond with All Lives Matter. Mm. That's quite a contentious thing. And if, if I'm honest, like a while back, I might have been kind of similar, but kind of in like an innocent way, like not really knowing yeah. both statements. Like they're both true. Like I think some people mistake it as like, when people say black lives matter and someone says all lives matter they're like no black lives doesn't matter all lives matter when really it's the same kind of thing or not the same thing yeah but it's like both statements are true like all lives do matter black lives do matter and that's what people are kind of fighting for at the moment yeah i agree i think a good one that actually a friend of ours armina shared there were loads of houses and then one house is on fire and they're saying okay we need to save this house because it's like burning or whatever and then the other people are like, yeah, but all houses matter. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, but that's that's not the point. This house is on fire. Yeah. So in a way, this community is on fire as well. Yeah. I mean, if you look at things like, like even the term feminism, why like people argue, why aren't we calling it equalism or humanism? All of us are equal. We should all be equal. But you're not, in order to make everybody equal, you need to uplift whoever is being, whoever is at a disadvantage. So for Feminism, you need to uplift, like, not just, like, you need to uplift all women, so including women of color, trans women, whatever. And that's why it's called feminism, because the community that you're trying to impact probably should be the title of what you're trying to do, because that's your focus in order to ensure that all lives matter. Okay. So, with Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. it's like the Black community is 
under so much rage and repression and essentially things are on fire for them right now. So why wouldn't you put out that fire? Why wouldn't you do the work to have them be part of all lives? So yeah. If you look at it from like a, even from like a maths perspective, yeah. like an equation, yeah, black lives matter, brown lives matter, white lives matter, they all need to add up and then that would equal all, all lives, lives matter. matter. Exactly. So like if one of them doesn't, is not there, then all lives don't matter. So exactly. you can't even claim like all lives matter. Yeah, one of the things I saw in a comedy sketch was like I saw on Twitter, I think everyone may have seen it because of how viral it was. It was like doing stand-up comedy and he was just like, like, all we're trying to say is black lives matter. We're not trying to say black lives are like, um, more than anything else or you know like yeah. and then people just instantly shut us down they can't even let us have black lives matter like that's all we want we don't we're not <laughs> saying we want anything more or anything and he put it in quite a funny way and i was just laughing because like, i'm glad there's some people that are blowing up i guess due to comedy reasons and usually they're primarily um from africa african descent of some sort yeah and yeah so like that's it's been quite funny to see like some some people make a comedic thing out of it especially because it's all serious but sometimes comedicness could help bring more light to the movement itself so i i did i did enjoy when certain people um have done that i'll, I'll keep as many links as we can fit in this character limit of our description we'll make sure we provide <laughs> of like a call of videos or the any other black lives matter charities yeah. and so on but yeah, yeah. <laughs> no it's just, it's just bad like how like are you disagreeing with the statement "Black Lives Matter"? Like, are you are you saying they don't matter? Like, <laughs> what? One thing I tried to like find out, which I had had no luck in, is like, why are they still referred to as black when in in reality they're a shade of brown? They're just a darker shade of brown. Which I couldn't <laughs> find like anything to help me out. So I was just like, I don't know. Is it still politically correct to call them black? I think that's the most politically correct thing at the moment because I think people have been called out for saying, "Oh, we need to defend the BAME community." BAME stands for Black, Asian, and Minority Ethnic. And it just clumps all people of color and all ethnic minorities together without realizing that, in a way, there is a hierarchy within ethnic minorities. So if you look at India and the caste system, at the moment, there's a Dalit Lives Matter movement building up. So Dalit's like the lowest caste in the Hindu caste system, which I'm guessing you guys know. And I think there's been, because of the Indian activists are relating the Black Lives Matter movement to India's obsession with colorism. So they celebrate people who are much fairer and they put down people who are much darker. And this exists in all kinds of Indian cinema. It exists in ads that you see on billboards on the street and not just color, but like caste as well. So there's been a lot of casteist violence, like upper caste boys killing stabbing a Dalit boy who tried to go to a temple like everybody's access to religion ideally should be the same so based on your caste why should you be excluded from that why should you be attacked for it why aren't there laws protecting you and that sort of thing so i think that's probably where i would come on to south asian prejudice against black people is that because maybe colonialism and the way that we've been raised and the media that we've been around we see fair is good and the darker shades is not so good. And then th that also affects our attitudes to people with darker complexions within our community and from other parts of India and also black people by extension. So it's really important, I think, for certain ethnic minorities who in a way are more privileged because of opportunities that they have access to, to look out for other ethnic minorities. So I can see in the UK, a lot of people from Chinese backgrounds and Indian backgrounds have done quite well in comparison to their black counterparts in terms of kind of getting into certain professions and being treated a certain way. Yeah. Like, I don't think I'm treated the same as my black colleagues. 
I think I'm treated better than them. And I think that's why I've tried to reach out more to my black colleagues and have more of them in my circles just to understand their experience. So, yeah, there's definitely a lot of prejudice against Indians. Like, till today, there was an incident on the train once. My mom was visiting me. And this lady sat down next to her and spoke about why Brexit was a good thing and why we needed to get rid of all the Indians. And my mom is obviously Indian and sitting next to her. And she wasn't attacking my mom directly, but she was just speaking matter-of-factly about her views. And my mom and I were just in shock that this lady was, like, speaking to the people that she was trying to insult about her views. And we were kind of like, ah, oh, okay, it's our stop get off now so it's really odd but um i don't know what you how you guys feel about it when i've seen like a lot of videos and a lot of people like a lot of black people talking about their experiences like with the police and everything i was just like yeah i'm not white but i've i've never felt in danger or unfairly treated because of the color of my skin i've never like once felt like in the car or anything we were going to be stopped by police or i was just going to be stopped randomly by police so yeah i, I definitely do agree that there is there is definitely a difference in treatment in the UK in a way, at least the way like people of our color skin are treated in comparison to people who are black. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's like, that's very true. I couldn't even see it in school really, because I guess I'm not sure how ethnically diverse it was for you, Sonali, but I know, I think it wasn't too much for Aaron. In my school, like there was a lot of like ethnic diversity, but you could tell that the black students were always treated as like the troublemakers, like the Somalis and so on. Yeah. And, I guess as a result, they kind of ended up fitting into that label because they're already labeled that way. So they tried to live up to that. And you could see it kind of being a thing like, and even in our area in general, like they, I guess usually they're labeled as people who'd be doing the bad things, but there's a lot of other groups doing bad things. It's just that the bad minority for them are publicized a lot more than the good, whatever, like all the normal majority. If they're doing the same thing as a white person, nothing's being said about it. Not, they're not giving any extra praise or anything. Or the same level of praise a white person may get. That's like things I've noticed. But like I only looked more, much more deeper into that when I learned about things like labeling and stuff. And that was like probably all more at university than anything. Yeah, I completely agree. I think there are definitely experienced some microaggressions from teachers and white classmates growing up. But I don't think it's as bad as what I've heard about in the UK, number one. And number two, I think because of how Hong Kong is, Hong Kong people can be quite racist sometimes. So I think that's put off a lot of black people from migrating here. So we have a really small Nigerian community in Hong Kong. And I think while I was growing up, we didn't have any black classmates. I think there were a few in the years below me. So I think it's becoming more common now. But from what I remember at school and at school up until uni, I didn't really have any black classmates. Because I think it's not a place that people from that community would choose to come to. And I think the same with China. There have been stories about how black people look up, how they're treated in certain countries before going there. And I think it's it's not very good here in Hong Kong. So they just never really moved here. Or it's possible that my school excluded them. But because I didn't grow up around them, it, it didn't affect how I treated certain people when I got to uni. But it just, it was never something that crossed my mind. So it was just kind of ignorance because I, I just didn't meet any people from that background. Yeah, a fun fact, I don't know if this was like a racist thing more than anything, but or if it was like just my experience or like so when I went to university, I felt more comfortable and more easily able to talk to black people than I did to like a lot of other people. And that's just because I guess not like stereotyping, but like a lot of people who had come up that I'd met there, they had come from like similar backgrounds, so they understood, you know, like by similar backgrounds I mean like on financially or kind of the areas we lived in. So they yeah. kind of, we could just make more humor, the music we like, we could speak about it more. Whereas when I initially like met like for example, the first Indian squad I met, I, I wouldn't say like I got 
I could speak to them about like music and so on. Whereas with black people, I felt more comfortable. Like so, one per, at least one of the people that lived down down the hall, I guess, like it was just yeah. way more comfortable speaking to them because it was just like, I guess, speaking like I was at home more. But yeah, that's not obviously trying to say that I'm trying to be black. It's just that obviously oh, we yeah. had more 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 in common than I had in common with a lot of people at university or so and that was just one thing and yeah that's like one thing to note so although i guess there's often the the racial thing we're growing up like i just wanted to like bring up that one positive into that for me at least like at uni i felt way more comfortable speaking to a black person than i guess speaking to a white or indian person just because i knew the music taste or like it's more often that the music taste and so on they would we could we could talk more sense like we could talk on a more of a deeper level and not have to deal with all the generic oh yeah yeah i get that i get that but they don't if that makes sense yeah i understand what you mean i think it's also because you've had similar experiences growing up in terms of where you lived and stuff like that but yeah i think there are a lot of indians that i know who try to be black i'm putting inverted quotes yeah. around my face um yeah. <laughs> i guess because there's been a lot of how people take the bits of black culture that they feel are acceptable like the music or some people kind of appropriate the hair or though but i think it's mostly music and possibly dressing style and slang and that sort of thing and i think those of us who do that or those of us who you know subscribe to black culture for entertainment reasons kind of need to address that i think hamish you've addressed it really well i must say so if everybody else could address it in the same way that would be really good within our community could you help me explain what I addressed? I'm, I'm a bit confused think, as to what exactly. No, I think, sorry, <laughs> I don't I know if I did a bad thing or a good thing. I don't no, know no, what. It's a good thing. Sorry, what I meant was I think you called out why you have that similarity to black people because you, you lived in the same area, listen to the same kind of music, and it it seems that you really appreciate the culture and kind of where they're coming from. But what I find, I think, the people I grew up with in Hong Kong is that even though they were Indian, they kind of subscribed to the good bits of black culture so we thought and they didn't really think about the implications behind it so it's something that we in the south asian community need to do yeah but yeah sorry i meant it as a good thing oh, okay yeah i was like oh, <laughs> did no, that indirectly be racist no 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 you weren't you weren't yeah, I, yeah. I, I, don't think so. I think there's also you mentioned like social media activism yeah so i think yeah a lot of that has been recently with the black lives movement there was like blackout tuesday yeah and i guess do you, do you think like that whole like the social media stuff works really so to affect change blackout tuesday i think not everybody understood what it was neither did i i think un until kind of i got around to posting my, my square on instagram people were like you should show a black square just to indicate that you're going to be posting about black lives matter content not that you're not going to be posting anything at all on social media and one mistake i made which i didn't realize until after i'd posted was that i put black lives matter as a hashtag under my picture and a lot of the mm -hmm. People were using the Black Lives Matter hashtag to look at kind of useful articles and resources. And all of that was literally blacked out. No one could see anything because there were over 11 million posts that were just black. Uh, so I felt pretty bad about that because I just, I didn't understand the messaging as well as I should have. I think to people who I know who have been willing to learn, it's really helped because if you're resharing resources by black people who've written about their experience or about things that you can be do to become a better ally, in that case, social media has been good for that because you can digest the information bite-sized chunks. In the past, it's not been so good. And I think it depends on how you use social media. So a friend of mine messaged me saying, I'm a little bit sick of people posting because I don't think anything is going to be is going to come of it and i said while if you stop your activism at social media then you've failed but if you encourage people to sign petitions donate engage in conversations then i think that's a really good form of activism so i've thankfully had people responding to things i've shared to give their viewpoint 
when I've tried to respond to people saying, oh, yeah, I agree with your statement or can you explain this to me? So if on social media you set up a dialogue rather than just a, these are my views, here you go, I think it's more productive. And also I like how people have been sharing petitions and sharing the actions that they've taken. So my answer really is that it depends on the extent that you invest in it. Yeah, I think I've seen a lot of that stuff as well where people have been like, yeah, what's that going to do? It's just, it's more of a, almost like a popularity thing, you know, like everyone's doing it. So I feel like I've got to do it as well. But I think, I think social media is like, it's, you think about it, like you have social media influencers. It's because they influence people. So you post stuff like this, it is going to influence people. And when you post about like the Black Lives Matter movement, that is for the better. Like, so I think social media does work. A lot of this posting stuff. I feel like in the grand scheme of things, it does have to be, the change has to be affected higher up, like legally. And maybe they don't really care as much about the social media stuff. Um, but the social media stuff would help just general perception and help bear understanding, which then I think filters down and then does in turn like lead to like the protests. And then that then leads to like the change being affected, like in government and stuff like that. Yeah. So I, I think it does help. Like social yeah. media is the, is the platform of today, like 2020. It's the biggest. It's probably bigger than the news and stuff like that. So yeah, no, I, I think it. It definitely is worth it. Yeah, I completely agree. Especially if you're an influencer, a big name person who's aligning yourself to this cause, it's quite useful. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I was thinking like because yeah, like from my perspective, like I was trying to like take a break from social media exactly as everything properly kicked off. So I was yeah. like, I don't want to post anything like uneducated. But whenever I see a petition that that I need to sign, I sign it because I know it will help make more noise and. Because if people are going to complain about protests and so on, then like they can't be mad when you sign a petition to literally make Mm -hmm. the noise that is literally a document that's going to eventually, hopefully, end up being discussed at the House of Parliament and so on. So like the more things you do to bring more recognition to it, like I may not like do active posts. I may do like a few retweets or something here and there just because it's just like, I guess, a bad time for me where I was like on social media, I literally go and post third wheel things and basically go off. (laughs) That's literally my social media. But I make sure to, I guess... If I see a petition, like, for example, the Shukri Abdi thing, please go and have a view of that, people. Um, That is literally a clear battle of racism right there. So I went and signed the petition. For that one, I actually saw that it said, if you donate £25, they'll match it. So I was like, you know what? Fuck it, I don't, I'm not going Nando's for any time soon. So £25, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's like, <laughs> yeah. And then they obviously would have to match the £25. So like That would help bring more recognition, whether it's advertising and so on. So like it, you don't, I guess, sometimes not everyone, like it's good to tweet, it's good to be active about it. But sometimes it's also understandable if like, you don't have to be like solely pressured because whether you do it or not, you're still going to get criticized either way. It's more about the cause you do it with so or the intent you do it with. So if I'm going to retweet it, I'm going to retweet it not because someone's telling me, oh, you need to tweet it or because and then when I tweet, if I get told, oh, you did it just for the clout or so, I'm like, nah, like there's things I need to tweet. And if I'm, if I'm on yeah. it and I see it on the little glimpses of social media I take, then it's going to get retweeted. And obviously, if any petitions are going to get signed and so on. And if after reading the petition, like if there's a need for me to donate, then I'll donate. But obviously it won't be. Yeah, correct. Yeah, it's just like, make sure you're, you're like actively, at least if you're not going to at least like, I guess, be socially trying to say everything, make sure you're educating yourself. That's like the, don't be just ignorant to it and say, oh, it's not something that you can make a change about because it's the same logic with elections. If when you vote in the elections, you're trying to yeah. do it so that the thing that closest matches your agenda works or the better thing for what you believe to be in society works. And yeah, in this case, Black Lives Matter should have been in society in the first place. So obviously I believe for it to be now a thing so if i put that in the petition it's the same thing as kind of voting it's just trying to bring things to attention 
So, yeah, your vote ma- in the same way your vote matters, you need to also be pushing the petitions because if the protests and so on won't be heard, then you can't deny like three million people signing a, a petition for, say, removal of statute X, Y, Z in the UK. Like, they have, they have a point. So you you need to pick one. Like like the government will have to pick whether they want the protests or they want um the petitions. And if they're not going to listen to the petitions, then the protests are going to just spiral out. So realistically, they have to listen to the things that you do. So just try to do it in, just try to do it in a, a well educated way in the way you do it. So I'm not saying the things I'm doing are right. I'm just saying just yeah. read up and decide how you want to do it. But make sure you do something better than nothing. Yeah, true. And there's no point in dismissing social media because no matter how big your platform you're going to engage and educate people that you know and then start debates locally and i think that that'll be a really good domino effect to affect change and also i think we've seen what happens when you don't vote in the us and the uk for brexit all those companies so i kind of hope that if we can engage as many people as possible on issues that matter to them that there'll be more people voting i, I think that's where yeah hamish you touched on a bit like doing something a lot of people feel like oh, it doesn't affect me why why should i do it do anything i think i was watching a video uh, casey neistat and he explained it and like that's where that's where privilege comes in like if you feel like you don't have to do it because it didn't affect you that's privilege and like it isn't even white pri- i've seen like white privilege thrown about a lot but it's not even white privilege it's just i'm not white but i'm privileged in that sense like a lot of that stuff that I've heard people talk about, I've never experienced that. Any help that people can give, I think any any change will be for the better. Yeah. This reminded me of, you know the protest, how some people were also doing the comedy sketch. There's another comedy sketch where this person did a, the next day BBC, what news interview would look like, yeah. And he basically did an accurate like description where he said that, I think the people on the beaches in the UK, they're all, because it was primarily white people there, there was like, it's all glorious, you're like, oh, they're having an amazing time, yeah. And then the moment that it's going to go to protest, it goes into all negative lights and they find the way to spin the most maddest bullshit. So one of the things, it made me laugh here, but it was actually going to be somewhat true, yeah, because it was like, look, Meghan Markle was... So you know when the horse ran off and hit someone whenever it was, they were using horses to, I guess, try and control the protest. So the horse had yeah. ran off yeah. and yeah. knocked someone over. So in this sketch, what they did was eventually they're like, oh, you can see uh, Meghan Markle here talking to this horse and telling it instructions and, and reciting drill lyrics here. I mean, this a week prior to it saying that it needs to go run man down, etc. Yeah. And I was just like, oh my God. I was laughing because it's it like, it's such an accurate depiction of the media. Yeah. And like, they'll find a way to twist Meghan Markle into it because she's once again a black heritage. And I was just like, the good comedy is based on truth and this was a mad truth to say but people wouldn't listen to it otherwise unless sometimes it was put in such a such a way and it also had like the graphics in the background they tried to make it like a bbc news sketch and that's i think what yeah and i was just like this is just too good like i'll try and once again i'll try to provide not only the two comedic links i've said but all the other stuff for everything yeah. everyone's saying here in the description and i think what you brought up there about the people on the beach versus people at protests i think indicates the media's attitude to the protests because on one hand there have been reports of people going to brighton beach and not respecting social distancing and not wearing masks and then people criticize protesters for assembling in parks and not respecting social distancing and not wearing masks but you find that the protesters are much more would rather like adhere to social distancing where possible and a lot of them do wear masks they're just not photos that they show you on the media like um, I have a friend who's been photographing the protests in London. I think at least 50% of people are wearing face masks. And that's more than most people I've seen in the UK wear. I don't know if we have a t- time for a debate about face masks, but it's something that I'm quite angry about, actually. Because 
from personal experience, I was in Hong Kong during SARS, which was the last coronavirus. I was really young then. And then also during swine flu. And I think part of Hong Kong's success in tackling the virus has been because people have been really prudent about wearing masks and maintaining hygiene. But the in contrast, the UK have been quite anti-masks. One, because there's not enough PPE for the NHS, which is fair. But two, because there seems to be a political maybe societal thing against face coverings. I don't know if it's just me, but I think because some people are anti-China and they see it as being pro-China to wear masks, I don't think anybody's recommended masks till now. And they're not foolproof, but I think if you're if there's a precaution that could be taken, you should probably take it. But I think it connects to the protest because the people who are fighting for Black Lives Matter also feel that they have a duty to uphold the rules where possible. Whereas I think people who feel that they're above the rules are kind of going to beaches when it's sunny or like in Dominic Cummings' case, driving up to Durham and back. So yeah, I think the media really does put a spin on things and I'm angry about masks. That is my... Yeah, I, d- I don't know. The masks were always from like a from the beginning of the pandemic. The masks were like kind of... There were conflicting reports. Some people said they helped. Some people said they didn't help. Yeah. Some people say they only help if you've got the virus um, and it doesn't help if you haven't got the virus um, and so on. So I think there's just a lot of confusion. I guess just generally people don't want to wear masks. Like it's not, yeah. it's not like a convenient thing, but I, I agree with you. So like it's a precaution and it's, it's like a, it's a life and death kind of thing. Like <laughs> you might yeah. as well just do it. Like well, it's not going to yeah. hurt you. You know what I mean? That's true. Because um, I think there was an incident where a student from Singapore was walking in central London with a mask on when he heard that coronavirus had reached here. I think he was beaten up uh, in the street and he wrote like a long Facebook post about it and it featured in the media in Hong Kong as well, which is how I found out about it because I follow our local newspaper on social media. And then there's also been like this spike in anti-Chinese racism as a result of coronavirus. Like Trump has called it the China virus. Yeah. So I think... It might not be said, but I think the way I perceive it is that there's been a little bit of, there's been quite a bit of political tension around wearing masks. But I mean, maybe if I'm not really looking at the science, I'm more looking at the kind of cases and the tendency to wear masks when I've been looking at coronavirus situations. So you think like people have been like, oh, a lot of Chinese people wear masks. I don't want to wear masks. Yeah, I think so. That's some commentary that I've received from people that I know who were kind of anti-mask. Some people have said there's no scientific evidence to back it up. And I think I'm pro-mask based on experience, really, not so much from any scientific studies that I've read. So it could be the case that it doesn't affect it. But based on case data from certain countries like Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, Hong Kong, where they all wear masks quite fervently, the situation's more under control. And I guess also people haven't gone out as much, they haven't socialized as much. And whenever they need to go out, they've minimized the risk to an extent. Because we don't know if asymptomatic people can pass it. We don't know if cough drop, how far certain droplets can, can, can reach and so on. So it's a shame that, like, again, it goes back to what I said about, like, the UK government being a bit reactive. Like, why wouldn't you take a precautionary measure in a time like this and why has it taken so long so that's been a bit annoying for me personally yeah i i don't really know what the uk government doing to be honest um, <laughs> <laughs> we, we seem to be less like 
going back to normal pretty quickly as well i think yeah well the second spike is literally going to happen very very soon because i i don't feel like <laughs> the restrictions they're uplifting and for whom they're uplifting it doesn't even make any sense to like oh people can stop stop making social bubbles like are you trying to are you in the interest of happiness of people or are we in the interest of health of people right now because yeah like surely like Obviously, they're ignorant as fuck because they're the top, as I said, 2% and they don't actually utilize the NHS the way everyone else has to. So they don't experience yeah. like they, they have more privatized things. They have they're a better care no matter what. And they're also going to get priority even the NHS directly because they run in the flipping country. Um, So yeah. he was like, oh, obviously, Boris Johnson made it sound like the NHS isn't bad. But I was I, when I went to the hospital before all of this kicked off. Yeah, I knew that there was no waiting room. There's like hospital beds literally in the corridors because there's no space and they have marked out beds. So I'm just like, so you're choosing. Yeah, you went to hospital. Yeah. You probably saw how packed it was. They're doing 12 hour shifts. They're getting paid a hell of a lot less than you. And yet you're choosing to put them through a second spike and probably kill off more doctors who literally are already working overtime. Um, yeah. Just because what you care for more for businesses and I guess some people's happiness than it is for everyone's life and it's already obvious that it's there but if people already haven't been saying it that's literally what it is because Tory government literally care for businesses and if you if anyone tries yeah. to like prove otherwise go ahead prove otherwise I'm open to hearing this but if you can find proof that the Tory government care more than do for privatization and then of businesses you're on crud like that's literally it and there's literally no justification you could give on, on that right now if you can find a justification like oh they're looking for this or some small businesses will survive yeah sure they will but is it worth it? The small businesses say they survive and then the owners and everyone in that company caught COVID and died. What happens then? That small business is dead anyway. So like the yeah. reasoning that they're using is so flawed and the damage to the not so great infrastructure of the NHS, is it worth it? Because I don't think we're outputting yeah. the amount of doctors we need to go into the NHS and pay them what we need um, that we're doing at the rate we're going to be killing people off right now. Like, what's the correct choice? And that's for all the people voting Tory. You're an absolute jackass, yeah. <laughs> I'm not telling you to vote for anything else, but look into what you voted for. Yeah, I agree. It's important to look into policies properly before you vote. Yeah, I I mean, I get that it's probably not economically viable to continue a lockdown to an extent. And also that the government will probably run out of funds to support people's jobs, which is probably why they're opening up. But what I still can't understand is why you wouldn't put human life first. Like, even even the Tories can get the virus. So why not think about, you know, healing the country kind of healthcare-wise before opening it up? Because if, every, if people get sick, no one can really go to work. People will be scared of going to work. That impacts the economy differently if you do nothing. So it, it is tough. Like, I don't think anybody has had an easy job of mm -hmm. dealing with coronavirus. I just think that the UK has messed up badly and could have done better. Like, I mean, yeah. people were still going to die. I think the figures could have been halved. I think I read something that if we'd started lockdown a week earlier, then yeah. we would have half the deaths that we do now. Yeah, I saw that. Hamish, people would argue when you said like health versus happiness. Some people would argue that they're like related. Yeah, they're related in one sense. Obviously, everything is going to be tangled up and in a nasty way. But like, would you rather be alive like another year, for example? Or would you rather be happy for the next 10 minutes? Because like, yeah, you may not be as happy in that one year. But in that one year, don't you have a lot more to experience and everything and a lot more to do? You could end up having more happiness in that one year and you could learn new ways of doing yeah. it. It's just that you're not used Long to this change that's happened in your life. For example, like being locked into your house here yeah, for the most part, if you if you're abiding, obviously, like you're just not used to that, and you haven't found ways to incorporate happiness into that schedule. You're just trying to. Obviously, there are a lot of other factors that entangle into this, but like, have you tried to find ways of injecting that happiness in, like instead of just looking at your old 
like that non-change mindset because we live in a world that's ever changing as we all know it's more about yeah yeah it's changed yeah obviously it's a bit shit i'm not gonna lie but kind of what what are we doing to also make it better for ourselves then like like say one of us died from covid tomorrow like that's not gonna change anything like you can still be in lockdown and die but you can still be in lockdown and be happy at the same time or happier than what you would be just sitting there not expecting it to go back to normal and not trying to focus on a bit of the happiness yeah i completely agree i think like i don't think everybody has the mindset that you should make the best of what you have it's really difficult yeah, to do a lot I, of the I time if, if you feel that your situation isn't the best and i think also we can't ignore the mental health impact staying at home is having and then there's also been a massive impact on domestic abuse mm-hmm. people are trying to campaign for to assist domestic abuse victims but i don't know how successful that's been but i think for those of us that are privileged enough to have home environments where we can make the make the best of it i guess i've made the best of the fact that i can cook a lot more and like be a bit healthier and also kind of take up new hobbies that I otherwise wouldn't have the time for and spend some time with my family and that sort of thing like I'm, I'm very privileged that my job has let me fly home to Hong Kong and work from here from some for some time it was really risky getting home but the process of getting home also kind of showed me how Hong Kong's virus measures are much better than the UK's <laughs> So it's just because I've seen that. Like, for example, I think from Monday, if you arrive into the UK, you have to quarantine for 14 days. So I'm meant to come back beginning September. So I'll quarantine for 14 days. But here they're like tracking you properly. So they gave me a tracker bracelet that was connected to my phone app. Um, and they were like, you have to stay home for 14 days. And they would call oh, me up nice. and they would text me and ask me where I was. Um, and ask me to give them my body temperature every day in the app. They do that in other countries, I think in Singapore. But in Singapore, I think they come to your house and check that you're at home uh, once a week for the two weeks that you're home. So I'm hoping that, I'm not hopeful actually, Mm -hmm. that the UK will have something to track that people are staying home. Uh, They've got like a thousand pound fine. But like, if I compare it to here, the fine here is two thousand five hundred pounds rather than a thousand. So again, if you're wealthy, you can afford to pay a thousand pound fine if you break quarantine. What what is the current like status of coronavirus in Hong Kong? So we've been getting imported cases because there are like Hong Kong residents who are stuck abroad in places like India and Pakistan. So whenever and the Hong Kong is charging flights for people who hold a Hong Kong permanent residency to come back here, and then they're put into a quarantine center and then after 14 days you can go home but the uk and us arrivals are exempt from that so i was able to quarantine at home and that sparked off a bit of a debate about racism and coronavirus here because there's a petition the government was being petitioned to let certain nationals like for example from india to quarantine at home so yeah hong kong is doing it in two different ways and then with all like the current protests in hong kong like here we've seen like a lot of protests and people being like oh that's going to cause a second wave or whatever yeah is that is there the same kind of view with the protests in hong kong yes so i think the rule here now is that no more than eight people can gather together, like in a restaurant or in public. I think at home, the number is a bit more than that. But there's calls from the from people who are protesting saying that the government has extended coronavirus rules to curb protests, which one, because they want to stop the spread, and two, because they don't want the protests to happen, because the Chinese government choose Hong Kong's governor and people in power here, and Hong Kong leadership is becoming more and more openly pro-China. So there's been a bit of a political attack as a result of that. Um, the Tiananmen Square massacre commencement was officially cancelled, but unofficially many people went and marked it anyway. And there were a lot of arrests that night, unfortunately. That was on June 4th. Then June 9th was the anniversary of the protests last year. 
again, people gathered in Central, which is our business district. And again, arrests were made because they're all unlawful assemblies and they all break the coronavirus laws. So it's been quite contentious. I don't know if police are making arrests in the UK as a result of the protests, but here they're really clamping down because China's imposing some national security law and a national anthem law, which essentially means you can't call for separating from China and you can't insult China. So, yeah, I was going to ask, like, what is the whole protest about? Like, how did it originate? Yeah. I've, I've only read like a brief couple of articles on it and watched a few videos, but I wouldn't say I'm totally clued up on it. Yeah, sure. So in summary, last summer, the protest kicked off because the Hong Kong government said they were going to impose an extradition bill, which meant that criminals in Hong Kong could be extradited to China. And a lot of people read it as, if you're seen speaking out about China, we can extradite you to China. And people were scared because in 2015, and even some time before that, some booksellers were selling anti-communist books in their bookshops and were very outspokenly anti-China. And they were ta- they disappeared from Hong Kong and didn't return for a few years. So it's very possible that that kind of thing can happen to journalists here, to people who speak out against China, to protesters. Okay. So those protests went on for a really long time. And our governor, Carrie Lam, didn't withdraw the bill for a, couple, a few months. So protests were massive. I think like three million people showed up, which is yeah. almost half of Hong Kong's population. And then they got really violent. And then people who were at the center of those protests started these five demands, which essentially there was no extradition bill, release the people who'd been imprisoned in uh, during the protests to stop calling protesters rioters. There was also like that Hong Kong should have universal suffrage. And there was a fifth one, which I'm struggling to remember now. Oh, yeah, there were, the fifth one was um, to have an inquiry into police brutality over the protests. One of them's actually been met. Yeah, so the extradition bill one has been met, but they carried on anyway because the other four demands have not been met. And the protests, so this started like a year ago. Yeah, this started a year ago. And all the way up till November, end of November, they were really bad. There was a siege at Polytechnic University where many students were hiding and like police had surrounded them and cornered them. There was a lot of violence, a lot of, you know, breaking of Chinese businesses. People would smash up banks and news agencies that supported China. Many, like... Tube stations were set on fire. Uh, people blocked roads everywhere and put up bricks. They set buses on fire. It got really bad. And then when I visited Hong Kong for Christmas, there was a mall protest going on. And I was meeting some friends in a mall, and a lot of them were standing around the mall, kind of like singing, holding signs, chanting. So those kind of mall protests still take place even now. But then when coronavirus became bad in Hong Kong, nobody really protested, and everyone thought okay, that it would yeah. die out. But as the anniversary of all of these events is approaching, things are kicking off again. I did see one thing they said, I uh, read up that the government banned protesters from wearing face masks. Yeah, because uh, they were wearing face masks so that they wouldn't be identified in photos and so that they wouldn't be arrested. Um, uh. So yeah, people, even if you were wearing a face mask normally and walking around, I think police would come up to you and question you and possibly arrest you and i mean now they want protesters to wear face masks if they're going out because of the virus actually they don't want protests at all so yeah post the mask ban a lot of protesters came out in masks and defied them anyway and that day quite a few arrests were made so i think till now the government have arrested around nine thousand people 
and we don't know any of their names. We don't know what's going to happen to any of them yet. And that's a bit scary because it indicates that China is definitely interfering. Like the whole thing is just about freedom of speech, right? It's essentially about Hong Kong becoming an independent territory. Like Hong Kong people want to be able to vote for their own government, whereas we can't vote for our governor. We can vote for our local MP. Until now, we've had pretty good freedom of speech, but already there have been some changes made to the local education system. So there's a Hong Kong school diploma that local schools that are funded by the government do here. So we don't do that in British schools that are in Hong Kong. So they're already making changes to like the kind of exam questions that people are being set, um, right. whether or not teachers can talk about protests. They want to change the curriculum because there used to be a subject called liberal studies where local students would discuss kind of how the basic law, which is our constitution with China, came into place. So it's the erosion of Hong Kong is already happening, unfortunately. Another history lesson. So when the British said they would hand, they would make Hong Kong independent in the 70s and 80s, and they started having talks with China. And initially, because of some campaigning done in Hong Kong, they said we'd try and make Hong Kong as autonomous as possible. Then in 1989, the Tiananmen massacre happened. And Till this day, no one really knows what happened. It's like there were many pro-democracy protesters in China and Beijing's Tiananmen Square. So that was on June 4th. That was one of the events that Hong Kong had banned this year because of coronavirus. So outside of China, where it's not commemorated at all, Hong Kong has a massive event in our central like Victoria Park area where people come out. And speak about it. And essentially what happened was there was a massive group of students fighting for democracy in a protest in Tiananmen Square, which is in Beijing. And apparently they refused to stop. So China sent tanks. Uh, you can guess what happened next. But no one really talks about it in full because very few people have photos. Very few people have written accounts of what happened because all of those people are either dead or missing. Okay. Yeah. That's uh <laughs> I realize this has been a really cheerful episode so far. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> While it would be good to have a Hong Kong democracy, one thing I'm uncomfortable with is a lot of activists have appealed to conservative governments in the UK and US to protect them. And a lot of people have said that Hong Kong was better under British rule. I don't think that's really the answer to our problems, but I guess it's their way of getting attention and campaigning. So unfortunately, a lot of this is inevitable. I did want to touch on like some things you did, I think before university and then some things like during university. So I did do like a little stalk of your LinkedIn. Uh, oh, nice. <laughs> and you actually, you were campaigning in the death penalty abolishment movement. Yeah. So um, I think while I was at school, I joined Amnesty International's Hong Kong office as a volunteer. Oh, it's been a while. And I think they were campaigning to abolish the death penalty in Hong Kong, Singapore and Taiwan, and then like get the message to China that the death penalty is not the best thing. So this was pre-Hong Kong major protests. So we set up like a booth in uh, a central area of Hong Kong and like had people come and speak and like do performances. Uh, and we got people to sign petitions and so on. And I think it was good because in Singapore and Taiwan, they were reviewing cases on the death penalty as a result of some efforts by Amnesty. And I was, it was great to be part of that. So yeah, I think that's the most actively I've been involved in protests or any kind of political campaigning and it would have been nice if i was more involved in other stuff but yeah no it seemed pretty cool because that's like i don't know how old you were at the time but it seems like pre-university so like pretty young yeah still. i was like 16 17 yeah that's pretty mad and then 
also like touching on so you you mentioned earlier that you do consulting now but like yeah. journalism was like was something that you like did quite a bit like you mentioned earlier how jk rowling was someone who you looked up to we also mentioned earlier how you did like stuff with the ball so i wanted to know like a bit more just about like why maybe you went from kind of journalism to consulting or like how that happened so i think growing up i really liked english it was a subject that i was good at at school and i really wanted to be an author of some kind and then as I got older, I noticed there were a lot more opportunities in journalism. I started to gravitate towards that. So um, I worked with our local Hong Kong newspaper. like It's our biggest English language one, South China Morning Post. So I worked with their like youth publication for a while and even at university. And I took PPE as a degree because I thought it would be interesting to cover political and financial news. So I really got a lot of experience in that area, again, with the board and like I wrote for a careers website. I got an internship at cnn which was crazy like it was really good yeah cnn that's uh yeah it was like it was really big. awesome like i met a lot of the anchors that do the shows that are based in hong kong so i helped out with a show called on china um i did some video editing i prompted for one of the news anchors on like a live cut-in so that was that was really good and i got to write an article for cnn money but i think at warwick i also experienced a lot of other things so i helped start like an environmental startup come society. I work for things like Fuchibo. I think my degree exposed me to a lot of new things. And also, I think I wasn't very confident that I'd get a job in journalism because the competition for journalism, even at Warwick, was massive. So I did apply to journalistic places, but um, I was also kind of interested in exploring other things because I'd had different experiences. And uh, while I was writing for a career site, this job at Deloitte came up. And I was a little scared to apply to such a place because I didn't think that my skill set would suit it. But the job that I do now, which is in like change management and human capital consulting, requires a lot of writing communication skills. And it's allowed me to explore like working with tech and stuff. So I think it was motivated, one, by not being confident and two, by wanting to try something new. And then one like just cool thing I saw was they actually interviewed uh, Lily Singh. Yeah, that's, yeah, that was really cool. People that don't know, that's Superwoman on YouTube. Yeah, yeah, that's Superwoman. That's right. So I made a bit of a mistake with that because I reached out to her and I think one of her representatives said, oh, she can do it over a Word document rather than a call. And I stupidly said, okay. My manager at the time said, you should always request to speak to people because you work for, you know, at the time I was working for SCMP and she was like, you know, you should always speak to them yeah. over the phone. So I actually didn't speak to Lily Singh. I sent her some questions and she typed them up and sent them back to me. Uh, so I don't actually know if I spoke to her. So I feel a little bit dumb about that now. So it's not as... Uh, I mean, it was it was really exciting to like... Yeah. Email, get emails from her account and like supposedly get her replies. And I think it helped my journalism career to do that cover story. But I think whenever I people ask me about that, I always get a bit... Um, not defensive, but I always feel like I need to defend the fact that I actually never spoke to her. I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's probably the right. That's probably the right thing to do. I'll probably just go with it and be yeah. like, "Yeah, I spoke to her." Uh, <laughs> she's she's now got like she got a talk show in America now, or getting one. Yeah, like a little like late in releasing. I've seen some of it. It's not bad. Uh, she got a lot of criticism though. She's like really skyrocketed. I think she's been a role model for many um, brown people, people of color in the entertainment space but i think sometimes if certain people from certain backgrounds get too big they get criticized quite a lot so lily singh came out as bisexual and i think a lot of people started like imitating 
and calling her out for trying to plug the bisexual woman of color angle on her show. So, and I think there was a point where I wasn't liking her content as much because it was getting too commercial. Hmm. Uh, and she put out some stuff saying, oh, it would be great if I could change my content. And she took a break from YouTube and revisited her content and stuff. So I think every artist has growth. Kind of Nobody's really perfect. But it's also not great to put somebody down that way either. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree with what you said as well with, uh, yeah, people from certain backgrounds are probably, once they get to a certain stage, people are like, no, you can't do any more kind of thing. You can't strive to do more, which is just like, totally unfair it's been a very educational episode as well didn't know as much about the hong kong yeah. protest <laughs> i was gonna say it's been a really heavy episode like i listened to a couple of your other podcasts <laughs> i listened to them with bianca because i i wanted to prep myself i was like i'm gonna listen to all of these because i'd listened to the first few and then i'd always say oh i'm gonna get around to listen to the rest so i will actually now because now that i'm gonna be featured i should probably <laughs> hear the rest um but i listened to bianca's in full before joining and i thought oh everyone's you know must be so much more light-hearted and then we get into you know black lives matter hong kong protests so there's been one episode which we had to actually get removed because of i guess it caused some other like issues some episodes have been heavy some have been light i think it's just happens that like the black lives movement has coincided with with this so i I would say like if anyone's listening that does want to come on the podcast and talk about the black lives movement or not only that like anything really basically it's 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 an invitation to anyone (laughs) if anyone wants to talk about anything they can come on but i guess more so if anyone does want to come on and talk about like the black lives movement because it's so uh i don't want to say relevant because it's always relevant but yeah, people know what I mean. Yeah, it's like a conversation that we need to Yeah, it's, it's on everyone's mind at the moment. Yeah, if anyone wants to come on, share their experience and yeah, just talk about it. Yeah, more than happy to have you on. Awesome. But yeah, I guess we'll start to round up with, so we end the episode with like some final questions, a shout out, call out and a shout out. I guess I'll go for the first one. And that is, if you had a chance to make a documentary, what would it be about? Mm, I was thinking about this and um, this, it would probably be to do with music. So I listen to a lot of indie music now, and they tend to be a lot of like white artists, but a lot of their music is influenced by world music and by black music. So I think it would be cool to do like a documentary on how world influences have influenced not just indie music, but like popular music today. So something around that would be really cool. I feel like it's a broad subject, but maybe it'd be like a docu-series. The second question is, who would be a dream podcast guest? Ooh, um... I want to say Michelle Obama. I feel like that's quite a common answer, but I'm reading her book at the moment and I watched Becoming. And I think post watching that documentary, I had a lot of questions for her, kind of what life was like inside the White House, kind of things she faced as a a black woman, if she would have done anything differently, if she would have influenced the president differently to make different decisions and kind of... Yeah, I think that, that sort of thing. I had a lot of questions coming out of that documentary. More positive questions, because I really appreciated uh, what they showed. Yeah, one thing to add there is, like, just, to, I guess, like a highlight, just so people think about, like, you could realize how fundamentally racist America is if the White House is called the White House. And that's where, it, yeah. and that's where like, everything politically should be happening for them. Yeah. But that's just something to think about. It's weird that it's called the White House. Do you, do you know why it's called the White House? Nope, but I need to look into that. But like, if it's called the White House, it's not going to be for any good means, is it? Like, let's be realistic here. There was a video I saw recently where that point was brought up. I don't know if you're referencing it from the same point. Oh, it's Muhammad Ali. Yeah, Muhammad Ali. There's like an interview with him. And he's like, 
it's it's quite funny because he says it in like a really joking way. He's like, oh, I asked my mom, like, why is why is Jesus white? Why is all the people around him white? Why is they have angels and demons? Why are the demons black and the angels are white? Why is yeah. the White House white? And he's like, and then that's how I realized that there was racism in this country, kind of thing. Yeah, he has a good way of explaining it. His interviews are really good. Okay, awesome. And then the third and final question. So this is a question we ask every guest, and that is, mm-hmm. what has been your most memorable third wheeling experience? Oh, I've been a third wheel for most of my life. Well, till last year, because I haven't seen someone for the last one year, which is great. Hello, in case you're <laughs> listening to this. Um, <laughs> uh, no, but till then, I think, <laughs> till then, um, I think most majority of my friends are relationships, I'd say 60 to 70%. Uh, and sometime last year, I think it was in May, I was the 11th wheel. I was even the third wheel because there were five couples and me at lunch. And I, I mean, my friends are usually really good about it, but it's something that you definitely notice. Uh, though one of my, my best friend does this thing where we live together in final year. So we used to act like husband and wife. I was the husband. She was, it, it's a weird thing that girls do. Um, <laughs> I, I'm straight. Um, but whenever me, her and her boyfriend used to hang out, she'd be like, she'd tell her boyfriend that he was the third wheel and that I wasn't just to make me feel better. So that was also pretty okay, yeah. But yeah. <laughs> I feel like however good your friends are, whenever in, you're in that situation, you, you always feel it like your friends yeah, can be like, really accept I mean, you can't blame anything, them but, but yeah yeah <laughs> and the next section is a call out so someone or multiple people who you'd like to maybe see on the third wheel in the future yeah actually i thought about this i have three names i'm gonna just pull up my phone because i wrote them Lucky down us. so um the first one is laura harrison she did politics at warwick i've learned a lot from her about a lot of the current situations uh, she's a good friend of mine and uh, she's also a dancer so she's competed internationally in dance so she'd be really interesting to speak to then second one would be anu roy so i lived with her at university she was a friend i spoke about she's a teacher at the moment and a mental health advocate uh she also did politics at warwick and the final person is again somebody i know of but i don't know but we've become friends on instagram her name is india may albi so she's been she's the one who's been photographing the black lives matter protests um, and she has a really interesting story. So she does a lot of film photography. Uh, and she spent a year in China. And I think she'd have a lot to say. Oh, awesome. That'll be, that'll be really cool. We'll reach out and get in touch with them. And last thing's a shout out. So each one of us can just shout out basically anything uh, anything we want. So Snarly, do you have anything? So it's not in the best shape yet, but I have a blog. It's called It's a Good Life. I haven't posted on it for a few years, but I will. Actually, no, I posted an article recently, but the gap between that one and my last one was two years. But I'd like to start writing again. So I can send you the link um, and I'll post it in my bio on my Instagram once I feel it's ready. So yeah, watch the space. Hey, Michelle, anything? Yeah, I was just going to link that Akala video that I was um, been watching. One of the Akala videos or many of them in the description. And I guess his music as well. For those of you who don't listen to him. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm going to just shout out just like the Black Lives Matter movement again. There's like, I know that there's this one website like blacklivescard.co yeah. or something like that. But I'll post a link to that and I think that's just got the resources. Like everything's like centralized on that link. Um, so there's links to like petitions and info about protesting and articles you can read up, books and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, that'll be my shout out. And yeah, I oh, think... Can I- change my oh, yeah, shout out it. sorry yeah, sorry yeah, i'd like to am i allowed to plug like stuff that i do at work if it's public if you're allowed then yeah <laughs> that's it 
So I think I said earlier in the episode, I'm supporting the multicultural network at work, and we have a public Twitter page where we're commenting on the Black Lives Matter movement um, and engaging with people from all sorts of backgrounds. So I think we're at, it's a funny one, but it's like, if you search up Deloitte MCN on Twitter, you should find it. So we'll put the link in, a, in the show yeah, notes. Yeah, I'll send you the link. Yeah, great. Thanks so much for coming on, especially uh, all the way from Hong Kong. Yeah, and it's been really good. It's been really fun. Nice meeting you for the first time. <laughs> yeah, and you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I hope everyone's uh, learned something about it. If anyone has, yeah, things they want to talk about or raise with us, just give us a message. And there'll be, lo- there'll be loads of links in the description because we've covered, yeah, quite a bit. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I hope everyone's enjoyed it. And I guess we'll just speak to you next week. Sweet. Have a good day. See ya. See ya. Bye.